Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Dingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Botswana opposition decries harassment ahead of elections and UN agency releases landmark report on migration from Africa to Europe. In economics news, ESCOM issues court papers to recover millions from Deloitte. And in sports news, a Proteas winning streak continues after the Proteas losing, well, winning streak continues at Netball Africa Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa, the leader of the main opposition party in Botswana, the umbrella for democratic change, Doma Boko, has cast doubt on the credibility of Wednesday's election in the country. Boko says the opposition is being harassed by the intelligence services. Two team members of the UDC's election campaign were apprehended by police, allegedly because one of them is from the United Kingdom and had no papers to be working in Botswana. Over 920,000 Botswana will vote in what's believed to be the most contested election in the history of Botswana. SADC member countries will this week join the international campaign that is calling for the removal of sanctions on Zimbabwe. This is in line with the African Union resolution to support Zimbabwe as the country struggles to rebuild its economy. Sophie Mukwena reports. Among countries that have already shown support for the lifting of economic sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe include Rwanda, Tanzania, South Africa and Zambia. Many believe this call will not yield positive results, while others say it will put pressure on the Western countries to review their position on Zimbabwe. Matches in solidarity with Zimbabwe are planned to take place on Friday in the different SADC member countries. The main march is expected to be in Harare, where the ruling party, ZANU-PF, is mobilizing support. Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has named a commission to probe a raid on a sit-in in June. Security forces killed dozens near the Defence Ministry in the capital Khartoum after repeated calls for justice from protest and civilian groups. The decision was issued a day before a mass rally planned by the Sudanese Professionals Association, which spearheaded the demonstration, leading to the overthrow of former President Omar al-Bashir in April. The commission will be charged with identifying those responsible for breaking up the sitting as well as establishing the number of dead and wounded as well as those that are missing. The UN Development Programme says it's time to change the discussion around migration. The UNDP is launching its report titled Scaling the Fence. They tracked over 3,000 migrants, mainly from Africa, across 30 European countries. The report is being launched in New York in the United States. UNDP Administrator Achim Steiner. Often it is those who have either been able to get some sense of another horizon, have perhaps some savings, have the energy, the courage to take the risk of undertaking this journey, who get up and leave. 
So the cliché profile of the irregular migrant does not fit the story of the most desperate moving, which kind of complicates the simplistic discussion that we've often heard. If only we can make development happen in those countries, migration will stop. And finally, a massive blaze has ripped through a home improvement store in Chile as violent protests continue in the capital, Santiago. Thousands of protesters have clashed with police in recent weeks, resulting in water cannons and tear gas being used to disperse the crowds. At least 11 people have been killed since protests erupted this month over a hike in public transport fares, but reflect simmering anger over intense economic inequality. Several Chilean cities have been placed in a state of emergency with control handed to the armed forces after looting arson attacks and violent clashes. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Leader of Botswana's main opposition party, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, Dumaboko, has cast doubt on the credibility of the elections to be held on Wednesday. Boko says the opposition is being harassed by the intelligence services, making it difficult for it to campaign around the country. Over 920,000 Botswana will vote tomorrow in what is believed to be the fiercely contested elections in the history of Botswana. Edumileng Khanjani. Botswana is a few hours shy from its hotly contested election yet, and the opposition is already crying foul. The UDC says before last night's events, its president's chopper was grounded during the party's campaigns a month ago, and Boko alleges police have been harassing him. They still will try. They'll try. Between now and, uh, and uh, Wednesday, maybe even after, they'll still be... Uh, on it, trying, using all the agencies for trying. Boko is already questioning credibility of the elections. Independent Electoral Commission needs to take itself and its mandate very seriously because the peace and stability of this country is now fragile on these. These are not ephemeral straws in the wind. These are serious matters demanding serious attention from all including the international community. In an earlier interview, the intelligence services accused Boko of ignoring laws of the country and trying to bully the law enforcement agencies. The DIS also accuses Boko of tax evasion. I meet Belen Kajani in Khaburone, Botswana. Africa's biggest diamond producer, Botswana, is preparing for elections on Wednesday. These come at a time when the country is facing a mammoth task of addressing sluggish economic growth, inequality, poverty and unemployment. The country has enjoyed relative political stability and economic growth since gaining independence from Britain in 1966. However, its commodity and agriculture-driven economy has left it vulnerable to changes in the international diamond market and drought. 
Sintle Englihihi reports. Dubbed the miracle of Africa, Botswana has been hailed as Africa's biggest diamond producer and one of the most economically stable countries on the continent. However, it remains the world's third most unequal country with the richest 20% of the population owning 65% of the national income. The poorest own 20%. Villages such as Kopong, some 30 kilometers outside Khaborone, illustrate that sad reality of life in rural Botswana. Residents here say, while there have been some developments, more still needs to be done to improve their standard of living. We have no water. Our children are unemployed, but we know that there are jobs in other countries. Life has improved and not improved. When we started, we had no developments, no roads, and shops. It was all just a bush. With unemployment currently at 18%, the local youth say more needs to be done to improve their skills and create better job opportunities. Our economy doesn't include us. When you finish school, you come back home and do nothing. There are no artisan jobs or any other job. Many graduates finish school and sit at home. They can't get any job, but they have degrees. You end up working for 1,000. The minimum wage must also be increased. It shouldn't be so slow that a person's income just pays rent and buys food. Botswana achieved 4.5% economic growth in 2018. However, experts have raised concerns that growth is expected to slow to 4% as a consequence of muted trends in global diamond mining and a less buoyant private sector. Dr. Gladys Mokawa is a political analyst at the University of Botswana. The reinvestment of the diamond money into various sectors of the economy really at, at certain points uh, of, our historical, of our political historical moments uh, were effective. You know, we, we've seen moments where the money was invested very wisely and prudently by the government. But there have been moments where perhaps a lot could have been done you know, in terms of really intensifying efforts and trying to look at ways in which the economy could have been diversified into. But like I said, there had been strides, there have been experiments in terms of how we can diversify. The business community in Botswana says more needs to be done to diversify the country's economy to overcome its reliance on commodities and agriculture. President of Business Botswana, Khubusamang Kibine, elaborates. Government import bill per annum sits at something between four and six billion pula. And uh, you look at some of the things that are imported and you ask yourself, why can't we do them here? We, we import almost 90% of anything that we consume from South Africa and from all over the world. For us to diversify our economy, we'll have to look at what are the easy to do. We, we can't try to be a manufacturing if we don't have competency in that. That was President of Business Botswana, Khubusa Mankibine. I am Sintle Inglihihi in Khaborone, Botswana. A new United Nations report has found that African migrants who often take dangerous routes to reach Europe are doing so not because they are fleeing danger, but rather because their home countries are not able to meet their aspirations quickly enough. 
The UN Development Programme Scaling Fences Voices of Irregular African Migrants to Europe presents the results of an extensive study exploring the perspectives and experiences of almost 2,000 individuals from 39 African countries who migrated through irregular routes to Europe, shown by Peace reports. It's a report that aims to address misconceptions about irregular African migration to Europe and is the second major review of contemporary development issues affecting Africa to be published by the UNDP's Regional Bureau for Africa, UNDP's Administrator Achim Steiner. It is not necessarily the most desperate, the least educated, the most starving who actually make up the majority of irregular migrants. And again, this should not surprise us. It is, in a sense, common sense. Whether you look back to the Irish famine, which shaped so much also of this country's early migration, if you look back to many other diasporas that have taken place, often it is those who have either been able to get some education, get some sense of another horizon, have perhaps some savings, have the energy, the courage to take the risk of undertaking this journey, who get up and leave. Among the key findings of the report is 58% of respondents were either in school or earning at the time of their departure. For 66%, earning or the prospect of earning at home was not a factor that constrained the decision to migrate. 62% felt unfairly treated by their governments, while 77% felt their country's political system provides no opportunity through which they could exert influence, prompting the move as UNDP's Assistant Administrator Ahuna Eziakonwa explains. We do know that prominent among them were many young Africans, men and women in their prime, all of whom had weighed their odds and arrived at the same conclusion, that risking death for an uncertain future in a foreign land held greater promise than the life and opportunities they faced at home in their own countries. Now, as a development practitioner, and for all those who are leaders in our world today, this is an indictment of great proportions. With barriers to opportunity, the question of choicelessness being a prominent feature both in countries of origin and when they arrive at their destination. The migration crisis is disrupting African development progress in ways we're just beginning to grasp. It is essential that we gain a clearer understanding of its drivers so that we and other development partners can respond more effectively. And in my view, it is about that all-important word, hope. About 93% of those who migrated experienced danger en route to their destination, but only 2% indicated that those risks would, in hindsight, have caused them to stay home, with a report pointing to the need for greater legal pathways in Europe to address the need. Akim Steiner again. The cliché profile of the irregular migrant does not fit the story of the most desperate moving which kind of complicates the simplistic discussion that we've often heard. If only we can make development happen in those countries, migration will stop. 
Yes, it will influence it, it will shape it, but not in ways that are mechanical or in a quantitative sense, simply a function of more millions into countries of origin, less migrants in the countries that receive them. Indeed, the fascinating thing about scaling the fences is it is the story of development and it is the contemporary articulation through the eyes of those who are regular migrants of the development state of thinking and experience of the 21st century we live in right now. A report with implications for African countries, particularly on development, but also for Europe, where too often the politics and policies around migration have failed to address the issue comprehensively. I'm Sherman Bryspees in New York. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. President of South Africa's ruling African National Congress, Cyril Ramaphosa, has encouraged the South African Communist Party to continue critiquing the ANC and being a thought leader of society. Ramaphosa was speaking at a seminar celebrating the 60th anniversary of the African Communist publication in Ravonia, Johannesburg. The magazine was started by a group of Marxist Lenin. Leninst in October 1959. The ANC president says that the publication and the SACP must continue in its work for strengthening Africa's democracy. Busi Chimombi reports. The African Communist magazine was produced by the admission of its original authors in conditions of great difficulty and danger. Established when the national government's suppression of communist act was in full force, it sought to defend and spread communist ideas to the continent. Speaking at the publication's 60th anniversary on Monday, President Cyril Ramaphosa described it as a repository of some of the best intellectual thought and debates which shaped the future of the country. He says it still has relevance today. We view the journal as an integral part of our revolutionary conscience, warning us always about the slow pace of socio-economic transformation the dangers of corruption and capture of the state by private corporate interests, the erosion of our moral credibility, the weakening of state organs, and the resultant decline of, in our electoral support. These obviously have been warnings, but they also need to be turned into the call to action. Labour Federation Kosatu has echoed Ramaphosa's sentiments, urging the SACP to give direction to the current economic woes facing the country. General Secretary Begin Jalinjali says that workers are in a state of crisis and need practical solutions via publications such as the African Communist to arrest the erosion of their rights and livelihoods under an increasingly neoliberal agenda. The worsening economic crisis is causing anxiety helplessness and panic to the struggling working class that is being crushed by the cost of living and unemployment. For the first time since 1994, an IMF World Bank intervention is realistic if things do not dramatically change. We know the pains of the IMF's workers all over the world, and this is one battle, Comrade President, that we must all together fight it to prevent. 
SACP General Secretary Blajan Zimande and current editor-in-chief of the African Communist, says the publication will take up the mantle of South Africa's most pressing challenge. We really sorely need to take forth the debates on the economy in the current period. If there is one thing that our special national congress really needs to focus on is economic transformation and the challenges now. And that, amongst other things, we need to go back to our document going to the root. But we need the AC as a platform to reflect the debates. Nzimaida says the party will continue to be the vanguard of South Africa's progressive forces, forming fronts with other like-minded organizations to advance a better future for ordinary citizens. That report by Busi Chimombe. At least 30 people were killed and several others injured in a bus accident in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The accident occurred on Sunday in western Banzangungu. The bus was traveling from Lufu, a border town with Angola, to Kinshasa on National Highway Number 1 when it came off the road and caught fire in a plot. Jean Wobam with the reports from Kinshasa. The bus was traveling from the city of Lufu in the province of Congo Central to this country's capital city, Kinshasa, and failed to break in Bazangunku. The vehicle was carrying more than 50 passengers and goods. Among the goods in the bus were flammable products, and that's one of the reasons why the bus burst into flames. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Minister of Humanitarian Affairs spoke to Channel Africa from the accident site. Steve Mbikai said 30 people have died and 18 others injured. The break was of good, so the bus uh, took fire, and 30 persons died in the fire, and uh, 18 injured were in the hospital now. I've brought uh, some cars here to knowledge for them back at Kinshasa, but uh, they took care about them at the hospital of Mazagongo. President Felix Chisekedi has suddenly cancelled his visit to Japan due to this bus accident that has plunged people in sadness here. He's the one to decide about the government plans regarding the situation, according to the Minister of Humanitarian Affairs, Stephen Bikai. We are waiting for the peasants who will come here today. Uh, I think that they will see, see my going to decide what will happen after. President Chesekedi is standing in the same for that accident. We are waiting for him here. How many people were in the bus in total? There could be around uh, 50, but it's not uh, easy to know exactly how many they were because uh, the guy who had uh, the list of the person who were there died too. But according to the explanation they gave me, there were about uh, 50 persons in the bus because people don't respect the rules of in the cycle in the Congo. We have to care about uh, the rules uh, uh, to be respected by those who are driving cars and Congo. The civil society has blamed the DRC government to have failed keeping Congolese safe as there has been too many accidents happening in this country. The recent one is this Antonov used by the presidency that has crashed in the Sankuru province 10 days ago. This civil society activist believes Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilunkamba should resign before this country can face more accidents than this is expected. Golden Misabiko. This is uh, happening very often. We are expecting more accidents to happen because people are put in a careless fullness. We are at a, a critical moment where people can drive as they want, as when they want. 
No, anything can happen. It can happen with the airplane who can fly without any consciousness. So uh, the Congolese people are going through a terrible period, a cold period of irresponsibility. And this Mr. Uh, Ilunga Ilukamba, who is the prime minister, is ruling with a terrible bad luck. I mean, uh, he is the reign. We've known a lot of many, many, many accidents. Uh, Airplane accident, train accident, ship accident. I think he should uh, take a decision just to resign because we can't go from one accident to another accident. This has been the same with the Kivu province on Lake Kivu. So something is wrong with Mr. Ilunga Ilukamba. Can we continue experiencing people being killed this way? We need to ask Ilunga Ilukamba to take his uh, responsibility and uh, decide to resign. He's a terrible man. He must quit. We can't wait till another 50 people die to ask him to quit. This bus accident has come while investigations are still underway to try and get more light on the reasons of the plant that crashed in the Sankuru province in this country's central part more than a week ago and the black box is still missing up to now. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Colton Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. India and Pakistan have blamed each other for shelling across the line of control, the de facto border that divides the disputed region of Kashmir. Both sides say they retaliated only after the other violated a ceasefire in place since 2003, allegedly killing civilians and soldiers on both sides. The nuclear-armed neighbors have already fought two wars and a limited conflict over Kashmir, but this year, tensions between the rivals sharply intensified. Rana Sen has more. Pakistan said the cross-border shelling targeted only civilians. Indian Army Chief Bipin Rawat insisted the action had a military purpose. We had picked up some definitive information that the terrorists have arrived in these camps. Now, before they could attempt the infiltration, it was decided that we target the terrorist camps across. And therefore, the camps were targeted. We had definitive information. We had the coordinates of where these camps have emerged. And in the action that our forces have taken, we have caused severe damage to terrorist infrastructure. Pakistan denies sending militants into Kashmir, but analyst Arjun Deshpande said in reality Islamabad will never give up as it has China's solid backing. Terror factory is never going to close. It's not going to happen. It's not like raise the point to, to an nth point and that will be the end of the terror factory in Pakistan. That is not going to end ever. Probably not till our grandchildren are born. No, not even then. Even the case of a negotiated settlement over Kashmir, it's not going to happen. In the sense, are they going to come to an agreement? And foreign affairs expert Swaran Singh believed China ran the risk of international isolation because of its stand against Indian action in Kashmir. 
हाउस एवर पावरफुल नो नेशन कैन हैंडल इट बाई इट्सल्फ सो इंटरनेशनल कोऑपरेशन इज इन बिल्ट इन काउंटरिंग टेररिज्म एंड आई थिंक दैट काइंड ऑफ बैकग्राउंड पुश्ड आई थिंक चाइना टू नॉट रियली बी सीन साइडिंग विद इट्स डियर अलाइव ऑल वेदर फ्रेंड पाकिस्तान बट at least behave as neutral even in kargil war that is exactly how chinese had behaved and when they see that their position is getting really marginalized and they are looking isolated and they are looking alienated from others they fall in line more or less an indian diplomat amar sinha joined the chorus against china which has huge business projects running in pakistan besides 17000 troops deployed there sooner or later they will have to realize that this is a policy which is going to hurt them also in the long run there is no terror group which will only attack one the plight of say muslims in in china where 1 million muslims are interned do you think these terror groups will overlook that sort of a situation and will it not have repercussions i i believe that china has to be very mindful of what uh, is in store for them but reality bites turkey and malaysia now oppose the indian crackdown in kashmir where politicians rights activists and students are still behind bars for news break this is rana sen reporting from new delhi Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa. a program that interrogates issues from an african perspective spotlight africa our headlines up next with an musa A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines: The leader of the main opposition party in Botswana, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, has cast doubt on the credibility of Wednesday's election in the country. Incumbent President Philippe Nyusi has won Mozambique's general election in the northern province of Nampula with slightly more than 60% of the vote. And South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is in Sochi, Russia. to attend a summit on relations between Russia and Africa those are the stories making headlines A bid to raise awareness on climate change and its effects in Zimbabwe the United Nations is conducting daily panel discussions on the topic Zimbabwe is currently grappling with one of the worst droughts in decades as well as the effects of cyclone Idai and the country has requested more than 300 million US dollars for assistance. Channel Africa Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe is battling with one of the worst droughts in more than 3 decades. Human and animal life is threatened with starvation owing to poor harvest and destruction of habitat. Normally by mid October rains would have started but in Zimbabwe no rains are yet to be received water availability is also threatened 
as most reservoirs are drying up. As such, the United Nations is from Monday morning launched an exhibition on climate change as a way of raising awareness, the UN resident coordinator Mario Ribeiro said. The objective of our gathering here today and the next few days is to raise awareness on the urgency of this action. The exhibition that we will open here today in this beautiful gallery is planned as, and there is also a plan to have a series of panel discussions featuring policymakers, experts and young people who will foster action and partnership for the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development in general. And we know that there is no sustainable development without action for climate change. While government is seized with this matter to do with climate change, the Southern African nation is broke and unable to come up with mitigation strategies that need resources. This has forced the United Nations family to intervene in a bid to save lives in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, Maria Ribeiro said. The theme that we want to promote this during this week is about climate action. As you know, the 74th session of the General Assembly highlighted climate action to boost ambition and accelerate action to implement the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Uh, this is very an impassioned uh, plea from the Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, who never ceases to highlight that the urgency of climate action. We're not talking about climate change or plans, we're talking about action. Uh, Zimbabwe has been grappling with recurrent drought and flooding, as well as resultant disease outbreaks. This year alone, some 44% of 5.7 million Zimbabweans are affected by climate shocks, namely a severe drought and cyclone Idai. Meanwhile, government has admitted that by the time Cyclone Idai hit in the western province of Manigaland in March this year, it was not ready. This was betrayed by the fact that the response was very slow and by the time assistance started to reach victims, more than 300 people had died and hundreds more were missing. The United Nations exhibition and discussion might change the climate change face in Zimbabwe, Labour and Social Welfare Minister Sekai Nzenza said. But ladies and gentlemen, the challenge we have, which is the reason why we're gathered here today, is climate change. We've seen what has happened with Cyclone Edai. Uh, and I want to admit that when I heard about Cyclone Edai uh, on the 16th of March, but when we got to Utari and tried to cross over to Tupinge, all the bridges were gone. And I want to say that was absolutely uh, a significant stake for the government to realize that we have been hit by climate change. So the message that I'd like to leave with you going forward as Zimbabweans, we need to raise awareness on climate change. However, the UNICEF boss in Zimbabwe, Leili Mushiri, beyond all natural disasters affects women and children more. This calls for more efforts to help countries understand climate change, Mushiri said. When we have disasters, children are those who are affected the most. And 
it's for this reason that uh, UNICEF globally has a very large portfolio of humanitarian uh, response in different parts of the world. And as we know, the world has many emergencies, both uh, human-inflicted or natural. So UNICEF is there uh, to support the government and partners in responding to the critical needs of children. And in, um, in Zimbabwe, uh, apart from the normal development work that we're doing, uh, we are also in, involved in, in their uh, response uh, to the different um, <coughs> Uh, the multi-hazards uh, in the country. Over 150 senior leaders from the water sector attended the fifth annual water stewardship event, which took place in Johannesburg. The event explored strategies to further develop and test alternative water management and water delivery solutions to overcome some of the nation's most pernicious water challenges and help meet the nation's water service objectives. Lebohang Mabange attended the event and filed this report. The fifth annual Water Stewardship Conference brought together representatives from government, industry, finance, civil society and development partners to explore how the water sector value chain in South Africa can be strengthened through partnership. The opening address was delivered by Ndileka Mohapi, who is the chief director at the South African Department of Water and Sanitation, and she said the following on the state of water in South Africa. We have looked into the aspect of water use efficiency, and water use efficiency in several aspects. There's issues around tools, especially the was that has been added, they've been trying to implement for several irrigation boards so that they are able to save water. But over and above that, some of the benefits include capacity building, where some of our own colleagues, as well as uh, some of the sector uh, uh, partners, have been exposed to practices that are taking place in other countries so that we can see as to whether we can prove in our water losses. Mohapi says that water losses in South Africa are higher than other countries and it's not something to be proud of. I don't even want to mention where our water losses stand currently because if you've been to some of these countries where losses are at an average of 5%, you can't be proud of a 41% water loss. So we still have a lot of work in terms of challenges that we have to do to improve. But above all, I'd like to also challenge the NGOs that are present in the house to see as to, 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 to put our heads together and see what is it that we can do better so that we can improve, especially on aspects of water losses. There's a lot of advocacy that has to go with that. I'm not blind to the fact that the infrastructure has aged. But there are several initiatives. Some have looked into what they wanted to pinpoint as the ugly, but they failed to look into the good things and the products that are going to be born out of uh, those particular initiatives. Channel Africa's Benjamin Moshatama spoke to Mark Dend, who is the regional manager at the Alliance for Water Stewardship, who was also part of the event, and he outlined the water challenges that are faced by South Africa. The water challenges that we face 
are not uh, unique to this part of the world. Uh, the whole world faces enormous challenges, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, some much more serious than ours. And, and this has resulted in the water being named as the top global risk in 2015 by the World Economic Forum. Uh, just a bit of background there. They have a global risk report, which they publish every year. It's the product of something like 2,000 analysts who work around the clock every year. And they published this report at Davos, the, the big financial conference mm-hmm. in Switzerland. And um, uh, since 2012, uh, water has been in the top five. Uh, water is an integral part of the climate change issues. And it's an integral part of all 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In closing, the fifth annual Water Stewardship Conference also showcased dynamic examples of collaborative governance through partnerships and practical case study success stories. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Lebohang Mabange. The Bloodhound supersonic car has officially been revealed at Hucks. Spun in South Africa's Northern Cape province. The car is in the country for the Bloodhound team to do the car's high-speed testing of 800 kilometers per hour before its world speed land record attempt of 1,600 kilometers per hour next year. Reginald Whitboy sent us this report. That is the deafening sound of the majestic Bloodhound supersonic car. It's the world's fastest straight-line car, powered by a state-of-the-art EJ200 Eurofighter Typhoon jet engine. With its precision machined solid aluminium wheels, made specially to withstand the stresses of travelling at supersonic speeds, the car was revealed for the first time at Oxygen Pan in the Kalahari. The car will attempt to go at a speed of 800 kilometers per hour during testing. It will then return next year for its land speed record attempt of 1,600 kilometers per hour. It is the car's first appearance at Hakskin Pan after the project was put under administration last year. However, in December last year, a British entrepreneur, Ian Warrest, saved the project from bankruptcy. Warrest explains the logistics of the supersonic car. What we're doing there is we're learning all about the aerodynamics of the car, how the wheels interrupt the desert floor, and also really importantly how we stop, because um, stopping is the most important thing. Andy keeps telling us we can go faster quite easily, but we can't stop. If we you know, stopping is the most important thing. The driver of the Bloodhound supersonic car, Andy Green, says he is delighted that the car will eventually attempt its land speed record of 1,600 kilometers per hour next year. Green says the Huxkin Pan was the best location for this world speed record attempt. And perhaps more remarkably, it was 10 years ago that I first came to the Huxkin Pan in the Northern Cape and saw what could be the best surface ever for a land speed record attempt, but covered in thousands of tons of stones with a huge causeway running across and with uh, rutted roads, a huge, huge amount of work to do. And we realised we could not achieve that. But with the Northern Cape government's help, it might be possible. So we asked them if we could achieve that, um, if they could achieve it, and they immediately saw the opportunity, they saw the vision to run the most exciting straight-line racing event in history here in the Northern Cape. More than 600 people were employed to clear the pan. 
stones had to be picked up by hand by the locals. Northern Cape Premier Dr. Zamani Sol attended this major milestone. He says this is a huge achievement for the province, hoping for more events in the area. We should also invest lots of funds in order to ensure that we embark on a vigorous marketing of the surface that we have here, of what we've created here, so that we can get much more events to come this direction. The team will examine how much drag the car creates in a number of scenarios and at various speeds using the wheel brakes, one or both of the drag parachutes and with the giant air brakes locked into position. Once the engineers and driver Andy Green are satisfied with the stopping and dragging ability of the car, it will be pushed to the next run profile building speed in each run by increments of 800 kilometers per hour. The team is hopeful to even achieve a 900 kilometers per hour for the test. I am Reginald Vidboy at Oxkin Pan in the Northern Cape. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. South Africa's power utility says it has issued court papers and filed an affidavit against Deloitte Consulting in an attempt to recover millions of US dollars. ESCOM also filed papers against the former CFO Anuj Singh and former senior executive Prish Gavinder. The power utility says it believes the contracts were irregularly awarded to Deloitte in 2016 the offer David to further calls for Singh and Governor to pay the cost of the application. South Africa's power utility says Deloitte engaged in activities that were unfair, inequitable, non-transparent and uncompetitive by using off-the-record briefings with ESCOM officials. ESCOM's spokesperson Digato Mutai says that they will continue to work with law enforcement to root out corruption and recover stolen funds. Scam has issued court papers and filed an affidavit against Deloitte Consulting for the setting aside of awards of contracts and the recovery of funds amounting to 207 million rands relating to improperly awarded work during 2016. We also now have a David call for our former Chief Financial Officer Anuj Singh and Senior Executive Prish Governor to pay the cost of the application. Member countries of the Southern African Regional Bloc SADC will this week join the international campaign that is calling for the removal of sanctions against Zimbabwe. This is in line with the African Union resolution to support Zimbabwe as the country struggles to rebuild its economy. Sophie Mugwena reports. Among countries that have already shown support for the lifting of economic sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe include Rwanda, Tanzania, South Africa, and Zambia. Many believe this call will not yield positive results, while others say it will put pressure on the Western countries to review their position on Zimbabwe. Matches in solidarity with Zimbabwe are planned to take place on Friday in the different SADC member countries. The main march is expected to be in Harare, where the ruling party, ZANU-PF, is mobilizing support. 
Rwanda becomes the first regional country to issue a complete ban on all single-use plastics. Retailers have for three months to clear their stocks and find alternatives, while industrial users and producers of single-use plastics have a two-year deadline. The ban affects all plastic carry bags and other single-use plastic items such as wrappers, plastic containers, bottles, straws, plastic cutlery, folders and balloons. Plastic duty-free bags are not authorized to be brought into the country. Uganda will host the third Pearl of Africa Birding Expo at the lakeside resort town of Entebbe. The country has 10% of the global bird population and some 1,080 bird species, both native and migratory, but still lags behind Kenya, Tunisia and South Africa in the number of birding tourists and local bird watchers. The country also receives over 10 million migratory birds annually. Uganda is targeting birding enthusiasts to boost tourist arrivals. Namibia's finance minister, Kale Schleuten, will tell the nation how much the government has spent to date, how much has been earned and how much still needs to be borrowed in the financial year. The review has become the norm after the government took on the International Monetary Fund's public finance management guidelines that require a review to be made to see if the government's expenditure, income and borrowing are in line with the budget and adjustments to be done when necessary. Schleuten gave notice last week to table the review in Parliament. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.39 Nigerian Naira, 10.75 Botswana Pula, 102.71 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.18 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, so one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.12 Brazilian Roll, 63.73 Russian Ruble, 70.69 Indian Rupee, 7.6 Chinese Yuan, and 14.75 to the South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold $1,483, platinum $885 per ounce. Brent crude oil $58.93 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour will begin with cricket news just ended in India. A whitewash. India beat South Africa by an innings and 202 runs in the third test to sweep the series 3-0 in Ranchi this morning. Debutant spinner Shabazz Nadim claimed the final two wickets and successive ball to dismiss the Proteas for 133 while following on in just the second over on day four. The Proteas started the day on 132 for eight. Tienas De Brain was out on his overnight score of 30 after coming into the 11 for Concast Dean Elgar who got a nasty hit on the helmet of paceman Umesh Yadav yesterday. The Spa Proteas extended their winning streak at the 2019 African Netball Cup in Belleville yesterday with an emphatic 71-36 win over Kenya. The South Africans came into the game unbeaten after four games while their opponents only managed a solitary win. In their four encounters, South Africa managed to convert 16 of their chances compared to 11 of Kenya. 
Now they will face Zambia in the final match today. Earlier, Uganda walked away with a maximum points as they beat Uganda 49-45, while Zimbabwe fought tooth and nail to salvage a 57-51 win over Zambia. In the last match of the day, Malawi beat Botswana 89-32. Today will be the last day of the tournament, and African Netball Cup will have a new champion. And now let's find out what the features are saying about the teams that will be playing today. It is Lesotho against Zambia at 10 o'clock Central African time, 1 p.m. Zimbabwe, Malawi. Uganda and Kenya will square it off at 2 p.m. Central African time. At 4 p.m., it will be South Africa and Zambia. And the 7 p.m. Central African time will be a closing ceremony. On to rugby news. Springboks coach Rashi Rasmus believes that knowing the Wales' intricate style of rugby well will definitely be an advantage for the Springboks heading into their Rugby World Cup semi-final clash this weekend. Having coached in the European leagues for more than five years before returning to the helm of the Springboks, Rasmus says that is his depth knowledge of wealth teams will come in handy. Having lost Wales twice since taking over as head coach of the Springboks, Erasmus remains confident that the box should have the edge over them. So I've never coached against a Welsh team where we could select all our first choice players which is available. So this will probably be the first time. But uh, they've got a great coaching staff and uh, the thing about them, I think they've created a squad. If you look at them, I think when they toured Argentina last year, where they, they took the, almost a B-side uh, or a second string side over there and they, they gave them a whitewash there. So I think they've created uh, a depth in every single position and yeah, I think they've got good confidence, great team spirit and we know how, how great the rugby culture is in, in, in Wales. So no, a big challenge for us and whenever I've coached four, coach four months against any Welsh team, it was never an easy game. So I'm not so sure if the individual knowledge about individuals would help me, but I think knowing the way the Welsh teams play might help me a little bit. The Springboks on Sunday overcame a spirited Japanese side to book their place in their next round of the tournament with a well-deserved 26-3, denying the hosts any tries in the process. The box have scored the most points of the tournament thus far, and they've only conceded three times and three tries in five games to date. Erasmus emphasized the importance of their defense. I think we've conceded three tries now in World Cup, and I think two of those were against New Zealand in four minutes. The other one was against Canada. I think we haven't had long spells where we were under pressure, we were actually folded uh, in terms of our defence. Although I know there's a lot of people that, that see a few um, holes in our defence. Um, I, I think we, we trust our system really well and, and we know defence is a pretty important thing uh, as part of a World Cup if you want to try and win, win a World Cup. And as we wrap it up with the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games fast approaching, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee together with the Minister of Sport, Natim Tueta, have agreed that change has to happen soon at the embattled body. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the sour. Botswana opposition decries harassment ahead of elections and UN agency releases landmark report on migration from Africa to Europe. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Donald featuring Tiwa Savage with a song titled Raindrops. Thank you.